So, uh, Christian, thanks for being with us today. You're good. We are going to talk about character. So I'm going to start with a terribly uh, general question, Socratic question. Uh, what is character and why is it important? <laughs> That's a big one, though. That could fill the rest of our time together. Uh, but first of all, let me say thank you for having me on your show. Uh, I've been working on the topic of character for a number of years. And what I wanted to do more recently is try and take a lot of that academic work in philosophy and, and kind of deliver it or make it more accessible to a larger audience. So in the, my most recent book, The Character Gap, I start by just defining my terms, being trying to be real clear what do we mean by character and what we don't mean. And then uh, after that, I talk about well, why is it important? Why should we care about this thing? So what is character? I am focused specifically on moral character, which I uh, want to think of as how we are disposed to think, feel, and act when it comes to moral matters. So it has three central components, a thinking component, a feeling component, and a behavioral component. And moral character comes in two broad types. I think of it as involving moral virtue on the one hand and moral vice on the other hand. So to make that less abstract and illustrate what, what I'm trying to say here, why don't we take a virtue like honesty? Uh, that's a trait of character, a character trait, which has a cognitive component. That has to do with how we think about the world. In particular, we think it's important to tell the truth. It's important not to cheat, not to steal. A motivational component as well. So an honest person cares about not telling a lie, values the truth, does not want to steal when going to the grocery store. And then ultimately it manifests if the opportunity arises in behavior. So the honest person on the stand in the courtroom will tell the truth and in the shopping mall will not steal from any vendors. So there, there's the three components I think of as central to moral character. And again, it comes in two varieties, moral vir virtues like honesty, but also courage, compassion, justice, temperance, fortitude, and uh, others on the list, as well as the flip side, the reverse side, which are the moral vices. So for any virtue, you can think, okay, honesty, dishonesty, courage, cowardice, justice, uh, injustice. Uh, so that's my, my broad framework starting point. And then maybe I'll stop there for the moment. And if we, we can pick up the other part of your question, uh, when it comes to why is it important, but hopefully that's, that was fairly clear. Brilliant. Thank you, Christian. So they, there's, there seems to be both a psychological dimension to character and there seems to be a behavioral, which I would suggest, which I think you mean is like in terms of the activities that we pursue in terms of uh, the, the actions are in terms of um, concrete practices in order to in enable us to be, um, I guess, virtuous. Yeah, so I would think of behavioral, it could take two forms. It could take the form of just momentary discrete actions, and then it could also take a larger form in terms of long-term practices and activities, which is what you were talking about. So I'm thinking that an honest person will, when on the court, uh, on the stand in the courtroom on, you know, Friday, April 26th, when asked a question, will tell the truth. That's a discrete particular action that manifested, that manifests that person's virtue of honesty. But that's a very narrow perspective on that person's character. Over time, you would also expect an honest person to manifest a cross-situationally consistent pattern of honest behavior. So not just in the courtroom, but also at the bar, in the office, at home, wherever the person happens to be where honesty come, can come into play, and also a stable pattern of behavior. So not just on that Friday, 
but the next Friday, the next Friday, the next Friday, weeks, months, years into the future. So I would say uh, the behavioral aspect of character shows up both in the short run, in momentary actions or, or, or uh, discrete uh, instances of behavior, as well as longer-term patterns, which we see both across situations and over time. That makes sense to me. That makes sense to me, Christian. I, um, so what I'm like to ask about then would, would character, it's, it seems to be a distinction you're operating with between, for want of a better word, feeling and emotion and transitive dispositions, if I could put it in those terms, you know, where someone has a, as you say, a stable pattern of attributes across a period of time. Would that be right? Yeah, so maybe I think so. But you can tell me if, if we're not using the terms the same way. I think uh, I think of it working this way. What's fundamental here is that uh, a person with a character trait has a certain psychological disposition. So the psychological is primary. When that disposition gets triggered, say, uh, when a compassionate person has a trait of compassion, uh, sees someone in need, say, sees someone who has dropped papers or is, uh, has a broken leg and needs to go to the hospital, that observation of the situation can trigger in that person's mind his or her trait of compassion, which can, in that instance, give rise to feelings and thoughts pertaining to what to do in this particular situation. So if it's seeing the person with a broken leg, that can trigger the person's virtue of compassion, which can give rise, for example, to uh, feelings, altruistic feelings, selfless feelings of wanting to help that person, more specifically, help get that person to the hospital to get the leg taken care of, and also trigger beliefs about how best to help that person, what means to take to get that person the help uh, that he or she needs. So those, I would, I would say, are like the, the, the temporary momentary feelings, but um, under they are uh, uh, given rise to or they are caused by a more fundamental psychological disposition, the virtue of compassion. And in those feelings and beliefs, in turn, this is, we're still at the psychological level, all, the, all these feelings and beliefs in turn can give rise to overt external manifest behavior, say in the form of walking over, helping the person get in your car, and driving the person to the hospital. Um, so that's that's a little bit how more about how I'm thinking about these things. Okay, now uh, the, the, what I want to ask you next is, I guess, to do with specifically the word character, because in everyday usage at least, because what you're offering is um, a theory of character, I think, which is clearly quite nuanced and rich. When we use the word character in everyday sense, I mean, I think you said the word in your book, you talked about sort of, you know, everyday speech, we say moral fiber, you know, sort of, you know, like good moral backbone or a strength of character. When we use the word character in that regard, it seems to be something that has, that is something unified, which unites all of these different dispositions or these different virtues that we have. So uh, I'm wondering, is that what's at play in what you're when you're thinking about it is 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 for someone to have a good character or a bad character i guess is it does it require a unification of a, a manifold or several or a few specific virtues good 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 so i want to make two two different points here one is a point by taxonomy i'm focused on moral character 
but the concept of character is broader than moral character. Moral character is just one kind of character. There can also be other kinds, say uh, intellectual character. There might be uh, athletic character. There might be um, prudential character. There might be religious character, aesthetic character. So that's a whole a whole other set of issues there if we want to dive into other kinds of character. I just hone in on the moral. And within the moral uh, uh, realm, we, we want to say, okay, someone's a morally good person as opposed to morally behaves well. So I'm, I'm focused on the internal aspects of the person. We want to say hey, someone's a morally good person and we are uh, really meaning that about their character, their moral character in general then yes, uh, that means that that person will have to instantiate or have to embody all the different moral virtues. Now, often when we say that, I think we're speaking a little bit looser. Uh, we're not thinking about, okay, is this a morally good person? And we go through a checklist of you know, justice, check, temperance, check, <laughs> courage, check, compassion, check. Okay, we check all the boxes, then conclusion, morally good. Uh, what we're probably thinking of is, something that's uh, salient to us at the moment. So we, we say, this is a morally good person because recently we've been seeing them donating a lot of their time to famine relief or uh, we've seen them uh, exercise lots of self-control. So that's kind of jumping from this one character trait or a couple uh, related character traits to a broader description of there are a, a morally good person. But if you want me to be philosophically careful, I would say, Someone is only truly morally good if they have all the moral virtues. So that, or if you want to say perfectly morally good, you have to have all the moral virtues, and that, that's that's what I think is required. Okay, thank you. Very succinct. So that begs the question: uh, What are the moral virtues then? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so, and that that invites a, a uh, uh, lots of different avenues to explore. So. The short answer is that there is no widely accepted list. And in fact, there's been, you know, historically lots of controversy. So we look at the list provided by Aristotle and we compare that for, to the list, say, that arose from the Judeo-Christian tradition and embodied in, say, the work of Aquinas. We compare that to the list of Nietzsche, that Nietzsche provides us. And we, we look at other contemporary lists and we see some overlap and some uh, often or sometimes some sharp divergence. So one, so how would we kind of work this out? Well, one way is to go through those lists and see what we personally agree with and say, you know, should we put humility on the list or should we not put humility on the list? Should we put chastity on the list? Should we not put chastity on the list to, to cite two uh, controversial examples? So that's a discussion we could have. And I, you know, I have my own views about what belongs in the list and what doesn't belong in the list. Uh, there's another way to go that I'll just mention. Um, and that's a more empirical route that has been used by psychologists in the field of positive psychology. So positive psychology is a uh, subfield of personality psychology that emerged really in the last 20 years. And as its name suggests, it's trying to focus on the more positive aspects of human beings, whereas psychology has tended to focus on rather uh, you know, more ways which we fall short or, or mess up in various ways. Uh, so what, what one of the hallmarks and uh, main accomplishments of positive psychology has been to come up with a list of 24 character strengths, is what they call them, but what we would call them virtues. Uh, and how they arrived at that list was by doing a very extensive cross-cultural analysis. Uh, so they are not trying to do normative ethics, they're not trying to be descriptive, they were just doing more sociological empirical work, saying, okay, 
can we look across philosophical systems, religious traditions, uh, even things like Hallmark greeting cards and Pokemon, you know, game cards and things like this and find a kind of common core of virtues that have had historical and cross-cultural significance to them. And, you know, I, I wasn't involved in that project and I can't comment on, on all the steps they went through, but the upshot is that they've arrived at these 24 character strengths, which are now widely used in, uh, in at least psychological research on moral character. So that's another place we might go to look for a list of moral virtues. 24 sounds like a lot, Christian. Sounds very demanding. <laughs> it is a lot. Um, and it's, there's actually some controversy about whether they got them all. Uh, so, for example, they don't have patience on the list. And I would, I would uh, make the case of patience belongs the list. So that, you're right. Uh, it, 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 um, how I think about that is if we are supposed to be working on all 24 at the same time, in order to try and become a good person, I've, I find myself kind of getting discouraged and saying it's too much to juggle. I also, uh, if a school system is doing a kind of virtue of the month program and they're, you know, like over the course of two or three years, they're trying to get through all the 24, but you know, here's patience month, here's compassion month, here's forgiveness month. I'm also somewhat skeptical about how effective that is. Uh, whether you can really move the needle on a virtue by spending a month on it or, or in some cases even a week on it. So my way of thinking about it is, is more like this. When we come into the topic of character improvements and trying to develop a better character, rather than looking at all 24, I want to say, let's do some self-examination of ourselves and try to identify two or three areas, recognizing that there are likely more, uh, recognizing that we probably don't do a good job of get, you know, approximating any virtue, um, where are we really falling short? And that's going to be an individual by individual matter. And let's, you know, start there and target those areas of weakness, you know, through some strategies and some intentional efforts, try to move the net needle gradually over the course of months and years, if it takes that, uh, in those areas and then move on to other ones. So when we're trying to cultivate these virtues or these habits, I suppose, because I, when I think of the word character i automatically jump to aristotle because he's the obvious one to think about so if i recall the nicomachean ethics aristotle says a virtue is a habit connected to a choice then therefore that means that in some sense we need to be a rational agent and we need to make a choice so choices have to come in at some point we are you know if we if we want to engage in a set of practices that will make us attain the virtues that will enable us to have a good character but on the other level, we have uh, to do that. Our dispositions are not rational or they're not immediately aware, at least aware, uh, present to our self-consciousness. For Aristotle, then there's a slight paradox. Then I mean, I think the word is, how does he put it? It's like hexis, I think. And he says that, uh, you know, a habit becomes, a habit works for good or bad, I guess. Or a habit, a virtue or a vice works when it becomes second nature, right? When it becomes, when it becomes something that we forget, Right. So that means that's something I think quite challenging when trying to acquire the dispositions that will lead us to a flourishing life. Yes, I, I, I entirely agree. Uh, so let me let me provide a little, little bit of context about how I think about it. And then I, you know, ultimately, I'm just going to end up agreeing with you. Uh, so in Aristotle's framework, uh, he has the, the at least the basics of it. He has four different categories. He's got vice, incontinence, continence and virtue. 
there's more to it than that. If, you know, for Aristotle scholars, they would get into give me some more categories, but this will be enough for now. Um, so vice and virtue share this feature. They're like second nature. Uh, when you exhibit them, you're wholehearted in exhibiting them. You're not internally conflicted. And that's what we what you just said about virtue and that uh, that kind of flow state that you're in um, is also going to be true of vice. Of course, the orientation is the opposite. In the case of vice, you're oriented towards the bad. In the case of virtue, you're oriented towards the good. Aristotle thinks most people don't start out either virtuous or vicious. They start out somewhere in between. And that's also my view as well. I think the empirical research, which we can get into later if you like, uh, supports the idea that most of us don't start out either virtuous or vicious, but somewhere in a middle space between the two. Um, but as we make progress in getting better, if we do make progress, what we can see is a movement towards more wholeheartedness and less towards internal conflict. So that brings in the other two categories, continence and incontinence for Aristotle. So incontinence is know the right thing to do, but you often give in to temptation and end up doing the wrong thing. And continence is, continence now, is knowing the right thing you do and still doing the right thing, but you have to struggle and engage with some internal conflict first before you end up doing the right thing. And for a lot of us, when we succeed in doing the right thing, we're, which is great, uh, we're not yet at that wholehearted level. We might have to overcome some temptation or some conflicts uh, before we can uh, reliably do the right thing. So I, I was just giving a little bit more background on Aristotle here. Now, just to agree with you there, since I don't think, on empirical grounds, we're, we are even at the continent level, most of us. We first have to get to that stage, that level, of reliably, cross-situationally doing the right thing. Even if we have to overcome temptation, it's hard enough just to get to that stage where our behavioral pattern is a virtuous pattern. And then from there, we have to go another stage yet, which is one where the motivation harmonizes with what we know what the right thing to do is. And so it becomes second nature. We just naturally do the right thing as opposed to struggling, having a struggle to do anything. So um, no, no disagreement with, with you. It's going to be very challenging. Connected to that, let's say someone who is in a dire or adverse situation. Let's say, I don't know, let's say someone who's got a severe addiction to heroin, right? Uh, and they're engaging in a whole pile of destructive activities uh, surrounding that. For, I'm, I'm sure, I'm pr pretty sure you've thought about this. So I'm wondering what you would say to that person, say, or, you know, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a, someone, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a heroin addict. It could be an alcoholic or, 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 you know, someone with any other um, compulsive behavior. How does that person, I suppose, depending on the severity of the situation, how does that person use or cultivate their dispositions if they are at the whim of, I don't know, say addiction or compulsive instincts? I'm not uh, probably well versed to answer that um, because I I worry that I'm not well enough informed about the the latest literature on things like addiction. So. Why, why I hesitate here is because I'm, what I'm thinking about is traits of character and cultivating good traits of character, working against bad traits of character, which I think of, as you already mentioned, as in within the realm of our control and a part of our rational agency. And I, I see a lot of people, and I've read some of this literature too, say that things like heroin addiction, this is something outside of our control uh, and not subject to our, our free will, if you want to use that term, or at least our voluntary control. So I, I'm then it becomes a conversation about other types of treatments, drug treatments and so forth that take take us outside of areas where I feel sure. like I'm really expert to 
be able yeah. to I, discuss I suppose, about. Sure, I suppose what I'm getting at is the idea of uh, instincts, really. You know, in some senses, how do we... Now, I suppose an addiction is not necessarily an instinct, not necessarily at least, or addictive behaviour or compulsive behaviour is not necessarily an instinct. But, I mean, I'm wondering for you, is, is there such a thing as someone who has moral instincts, I guess? You know, or is there someone who can cultivate those moral instincts to to be a more flourishing, uh, cultivated, uh, morally nuanced uh, character? Yeah, so I would depend a lot what we mean by instincts um, or, or uh, sure. feelings or emotions or whatnot. Um, I, I do think it's possible and I think it, it actually happens. Uh, one way it might I might be able to fill out the story a little bit uh, is by bringing in one of the strategies that I talk about in, in, in the book. Uh, about how to cultivate virtue. Um, and it's a strategy which I think would have something to say to this question. So uh, one in the, in the book, uh, towards the end of the book, I talk about how uh, there are different strategies for trying to become a better person that we can in- intentionally try to employ in our lives. And I talk about strategies that I don't think are very promising. And then I go over some strategies that I do think are quite promising. And one of them has to do with moral exemplars and role models. Sure. And so... The idea here is that we might not be virtuous ourselves, but we can hopefully find in our lives people who exhibit virtue, and then we can see them as role models, not just for how to behave, but also for how to think and feel. And so that's the, the, the connection back to your question. So to, to put a little bit more meat on that, there's a, they, these role models can take different forms. They can be historical role models. They can be contemporary role models. They can be fictional role models and they don't have to be real people. They can be, of course, real people as well. They can be distinguished, famous people. They can be people who are uh, our neighbors or, um, or, or work in our, our same building with us. And uh, the thought is we could see their behavior and be and admire the what they've done in some aspect of their life. We can admire what Abraham Lincoln did in telling the truth. We can admire what Harriet Tubman did in uh, helping free slaves. And that can have in turn this emotion of admiration can in turn have another emotional response of inspiration of to want to become like them. And not just in our behavior, but in our how we see the world cognitively and how we emotionally respond to the world. So to feel the same things that Harriet Tubman felt about the suffering of slaves, um, to uh, care about the truth, as much as Abraham Lincoln did, even long before he was president. So that's that's one area where I would I would want to uh, spell it out. I think a little bit more along the lines of what you're asking. So is it for you the case then that well we use the word character traits, don't we, very cheaply in everyday uh, conversation? So are character traits then for you different to say? So in some sense, character traits are more fundamental or substantial in some way than say things which are accidentally attached to us, such as, uh, I don't know, the color of our skin or the color of our eyes or the color of our hair or whatever. Does that make sense? It, it does. Uh, it would really depend on how we spell out the distinction. Uh, in one sense, moral character traits are not essential to us because we can have them or not have them. Uh, so on my view, the empirical research these days from psychology tells a story according to which most people do not have any moral virtues at all. Mm. So in that sense, they're very accidental uh, because most people don't have them. Uh, and it's also true on my 
uh, reading of the empirical literature that most people don't have the moral vices either. So they're, they're also accidental in one sense of accidental. Now, there could be this other sense, though, um, essential for being a morally good person. Uh, so the virtues, not all character traits, but the moral virtues would be essential for being a morally good person, and the moral vices would be essential for being a morally bad person. So I, I think I would want to be real careful how I was using the terminology and say moral virtues are essential in one sense to being a morally good person, but they're not essential in another sense because most people, in fact, don't have them. Okay, and that's a good place to to segue to talking about um, the bad folk of the world. You know, when we're talking about character, then, in that regard, it's not something essential. You know, it's not something absolute about the attributes a person has acquired across the span of their life. But then you can also equally say that someone has a bad character, right? You know, in your book, you you talk about uh, Joseph Stalin. You mentioned him briefly. You draw a comparison with him to uh, Mother Teresa. Um, so we take Sal- Stalin. Uh, so we got what we got there. We got a a brutal dictator, um, someone who engaged in <laughs> heinous acts uh, yeah. to such to to a, a humongous degree. Um, so I'm 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 just say someone like that. It doesn't necessarily have to be Stalin per se, but I'm thinking about what are the things that about a character that makes such a nefarious individual come to be. Well. So that that sounds like a developmental question. Uh, how how did, mm. how did his character form over time and be shaped in that kind of direction? And for that particular individual, I'd have to research his life history and know a lot more about uh, mm. his upbringing and, and things like that, which I don't don't know uh, frankly anything about. Um, so let me let me think. Step back one level and. Sure. And kind of sketch how I think about this, these matters with, with good and bad. So there are, there are empirical questions here and there are philosophical questions. On empirical grounds, I think most people, when I, and here I'm relying on the psychological research that goes back 50 years in social psychology and in personality psychology. I think the empirical story that emerges there is that most people are not like Stalin. Thank goodness. Most of us are not <laughs> bad people, even to a lesser extent than Stalin. Um, most of us have a character which is in the middle, roughly speaking, between virtue and vice. But I say most over and over again because I think there are outliers. So it's a bell curve. On the one hand, you have your, your, your virtuous people. Take your favorite example, Lincoln for honesty, uh, Mother Teresa for compassion. And then on the other hand, you have your other outliers, your vice outliers, like Stalin and Hitler, who's on the cover of, of the book. Um, so I take both of those categories to be exceptional individuals, one case exceptionally good, the other case exceptionally bad. The philosophical questions here tend to do, I think, with how we unpack the concept of a moral vice. For example, does it uh, involve a wholeheartedness requirement that you have to be wholeheartedly pursuing the bad, like we already talked about with respect to the good? Does it mean that in order to be a virtuous, uh, I'm sorry, a vicious person, you have to uh, have good intentions and yet fail, or do you have to have evil intentions? So does a vicious person want to bring about bad things as a person understands the bad, or could you be a vicious person who has good intentions but just gets it seriously wrong? Um, so you're 
you're you, you wanted to make the world a better place. You're just radically mistaken about what would make the world a better place. Um, so those are some of the philosophical questions that arise. And I guess we could say a third category, which you've introduced, is developmental. Uh, so how is it that over time, you know, someone starts out as an infant, a young child, a uh, teenager, and then eventually ends up like Stalin with his clearly vicious character? And for that last set of questions, we need to draw on the resources of autobiographies and biographies and uh, also developmental psychological work on how uh, children develop over time. So um, that's probably not something I have a lot to say about in the case of Stalin, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, the developmental side of it uh, is interesting because in some sense, I suppose, well, it's a rather chilling thought, really, isn't it, that because we become things, don't we? We become, we come from somewhere we are somewhere and we're going somewhere and we, we therefore we come from certain temperaments, certain moral temperaments, certain vices. We come from certain virtues and, you know, we have certain intentions about trying to overcome some of our vices or, you know, uh, or try to perfect some of our virtues even. But in some sense it's rather chilling, I suppose, that any of us could become, well, Stalin. Well, maybe not necessarily Stalin, but potentially a very bad person. That is, that is correct. Uh, it's possible there are questions about likelihood, but, it, but it's possible. That's right. So if we, if we think about the developmental um, aspects that are central here, uh, one aspect is genetic. So there's, mm. there is good evidence that uh, part of our personality and our personality traits, which would include our character traits, are genetically influenced. Another key component here is upbringing, of course, and parental structure, um, societal society that one is raised in, um, you know, kind of education, including moral education that one receives. And another uh, component of this, especially later in life, is is choice and what kind of choices one makes when one's at an age where one can make more autonomous free choices uh, and deliberate amongst options. And so depending on your genetics and your upbringing, that's going to slant things a certain direction. You're not going to, by the time you're a teenager, you're not going to have a blank slate um, you're going to be definitely be skewed in certain directions, hopefully good, but not always, as we know. But from there on, yes, uh, you can, through your own choices, shape your character in a variety of different directions. Now, it's not the kind of thing which happens overnight. So you can't just flip a switch, take a magic pill, and go from being honest to dishonest or dishonest to honest. But you can embark upon a certain path of life or engage in certain activities which over time will gradually cultivate particular character dispositions in your character. So to make that, that less you know, abstract, uh, one can choose one year to cheat on your taxes and then you know, the next year face the same situation again and choose to do it again and choose to do it year after year so that eventually after 10 years or 20 years, it just becomes you know, something you just don't even give any thought to anymore. It's what you're naturally going to to do as a result of the earlier free choices you made uh, for yourself. So yes, uh, t the short answer is um, we can, it is possible uh, to embark on uh, a path of vice. Indeed. I think, um, I'm not sure if I agree with Aristotle on this next point, but I, I, I think at one point Aristotle said that it's, uh, it's impossible for a young person or say a child to be virtuous because the acquisition of the virtues and virtuous dispositions is a lifelong task and it's something you acquire with experience and thought and wisdom and sagacity and uh, trial and error and all of these different things but i wonder i mean you 
you and I both have children. I know this. So what do you think of that? Like, when you look at uh, children, do you think that they are, like Aristotle says, in some sense, have a deficit of character? Do you think oh, that would be fair to say? That sounds strong uh, to me. And I'm not sure. I, I think I share with <laughs> me you. Me too. Me too. Some, yeah. <laughs> uh, some, some concerns about, uh, about Aristotle's view here. I would say it's a very, you know, uh, preliminary or nascent character. Uh, it's just, it's just starting out. And, but I, I would be very hesitant to say that we have to wait until 50 or 60 or 70, uh, mm. to decide or to achieve virtue or to, in the case of judging others, to decide whether someone has achieved virtue. So I would, I would think of this as a, a continuum and a, a gradual matter. And there's, there's probably no magic number or magic threshold, but to me, it seems possible that someone could be, uh, a compassionate person in their twenties, uh, or an honest person in, in their thirties, depending upon their, their own upbringing and life circumstances. Uh, the, you know, one of the reasons why Aristotle wanted to put the bar pretty high is because he thinks practical wisdom is, is necessary and essential to all the moral virtues. You have to be a practically wise person. And there's a lot packed into being practically wise. There's, there's a lot of, of criteria you have to meet. Um, but for me, uh, I, I guess I tend to be try to have a broader tense uh, and picture here. And I would want to say, you know, virtue can come in degrees. And to be a perfectly virtuous person, well, I don't think anyone has ever been a perfectly virtuous person, but but to be a perfectly virtuous person, yeah, you have the bar is set very, very high. But, but if you, there's such a thing as strong virtue, moderate virtue, weak virtue, and then we get out of the virtue taxonomy category again to other categories like continence, incontinence, and so forth. Well, if there's such a thing as weak virtue, moderate virtue, strong virtue, then I see no reason why someone in their 20s or 30s uh, couldn't achieve at least weak or moderate virtue. That makes perfect. Well, firstly, that's a much nicer way of putting it than I, than, than I uh, sort of ventriloquated Aristotle. I suppose what I'm interested in is what a deficit of character. And uh, I think you've uh, spoken to that in your answer to my last question, but it is essential to your book, this notion of deficit, I think. It's in the title, The Character Gap. So when you're talking about a gap in character, I don't think you're necessarily saying that we, in, now in this great modern age, people are lacking character. I think I think what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, you're saying you're talking more specifically about the gap between, well, the actual and the possible, I suppose, where we are now and where we're going. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, almost. Very, very close. Uh, it's the gap between the actual and the possible. That's that's correct. It's the gap between our actual character and the character we should have. So the, the, the possible could take lots of different forms. It could be a good character. It could be a bad character. Lots of things are possible. The character gap that I'm really really focus on is the gap between the actual and the good um, or the character we should have. So just to expand on that a little bit more. So philosophy can say quite a bit about what virtues are, why we should be virtuous, and what the standards are that we have to meet in order to develop a virtuous character. I use psychology quite a bit to tell us what our actual character looks like. How are we doing? Are we, in fact, virtuous? Are we vicious? Are we somewhere in between? And as a result of looking at lots of these experiments, like the Milgram experiment and uh, Darlene Batson's experiment and you know famous ones throughout history of psychology, I come to the conclusion that our actual character does not map onto 
for most of us, does not map onto the kind of character we should have, which is a virtuous character. So the philosophy helps me understand what kind of character we should have. The psychology helps me understand the kind of character we actually have. And I say there's a gap between the two, a significant gap. Our character actually falls short of what it should like. like. And that's why at the end of the book, I say, well, what can we do proactively to try and shrink that gap or diminish that gap to have our actual character better reflect the kind of character we should have? That's fascinating, Christian, because in some sense, and I can see kind of the Aristotelian lineage come to the fore there, because in some sense, the good is a telos, right? It's, it's, it's not something quite present, but it's, it's always an issue for us in some sense, almost in an existential sense. Yes. You know, the, the good is not there, but it's, 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 it's constantly hanging around. It's constantly calling us forth and drawing us towards it. Right. Um, yeah. sorry. Yeah. Go on, Christian. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Sorry. I didn't mean to speak over you. Um, that's, that's exactly the view, right? Um, so I, I think there is this notion of good character. And I think this notion is appealing and something we should strive towards. And it comes in degrees, but there is, you know, if, if there is a, a perfect character, that would be the ultimate telos to try and develop. That's unrealistic and unattainable, but we can at least work towards it. And so uh, in, in uh, the Character Gap book, I spent a chapter trying to make this good as appealing as possible. Uh, so I try to give different arguments and reasons to support the idea that this is something we should really care about. Maybe we haven't spent it, you know, we're, we're very busy, we've got a lot going on, especially these days. Uh, our, our attention can be diverted to different things. But I tried to outline a number of different reasons why becoming a good person and striving towards this telos is something that we should really prioritize and care a lot more about. Indeed, indeed. Uh, so what strategies should we adopt then, Christian, do you think, for working towards that telos, working towards that, that sort of virtual guiding light? Sure, sure, sure. sure. Yep, yep. So, um, so, so here we get into character improvement and, and development, and we've touched on this a little bit earlier, but this is a great chance to expand some more. I, I'll give you three strategies, and if you want to probe any of them in more detail afterwards, just, just let me know. Uh, so I uh, have already mentioned one of them, which is to seek out role models and exemplars of virtue in our lives uh, and have them help us fill out the picture of what it is to live a virtuous life, have them inspire us to become more like them and be motivated to live the kind of life that they're living, morally speaking. So we, we touched on that earlier when we were talking about uh, people like Abraham Lincoln and Harriet Tubman. So I'll set that one to one side. A second strategy, which I think is important, is the value of having more reminders in our lives. So there's lots of evidence that people psychologically can get off track, morally speaking, when they focus on something that's in their self-interest at the expense of doing the right thing. And what moral reminders can do is bring back to our conscious attention the importance of acting well. So that's very abstract. Let me give you a concrete illustration of this. In a recent set of studies having to do with cheating behavior, some researchers would have participants come into the lab, take a test, be told that they would be paid 50 cents per correct answer. Uh, there was no opportunity to cheat. They took the test, uh, 20 problems, and on average, they would get about seven problems correct. Another group of participants would come in, take the same test, 50 cents per correct answer, 20 problems, except they were told 
that they would grade their own materials afterwards, dispose of their, their answer key, and just verbally report however many answers they got correct. Well, here in one study, there was a difference between seven correct answers in the control group versus 14 in this, we could say, cheating opportunity group. Now, that's not the, the end of the story. The third group of participants came into the lab. They first, they were students. They had to sign their university's honor code and pledge their honor that they were not going to cheat. Then they took the test, 50 cents per correct answer, 20 problems. They got to grade themselves, verbally report, and their cheating was eliminated. So why do I mention this research? Well, because it's a dramatic, I think, illustration of the value of having a moral reminder in our lives. What was the moral reminder? It was the honor code. Signing the honor code brought to our attention, or in this case, the student's attention, the importance of honesty and not cheating. And it subsequently prevented them from doing something that they might have otherwise done. So that's a a illustration of the second idea of moral reminders. And those can take lots of different forms. They could be starting the day with a certain reading. They could be at the end of the day doing a journal where you reflect back over the choices you made during the day. It could be getting text messages that come on your phone, uh, reminding you of the importance of things like helping others and and the like. Okay. The last one, uh, uh, just to keep this uh, brief, last strategy I'll mention is what I call getting the word out. And this has to do with increasing our self-awareness and self-understanding of our own moral flaws. Where aspects of our psychology which are holding us back from being a virtuous person, including aspects which might be unconscious or functioning unconsciously until we learn that they are there and having an impact. And I'll give one illustration of this to see what what that what that means. Uh, so for a long time we've known from the psychological research that people in groups will not often help in emergency situations. So if I'm in a group and everyone else isn't doing anything and an emergency is going on, like someone's collapsed on the side of the road, it's very likely, it's very unlikely I will do anything myself. This is the bystander effect or the group effect. This is very surprising when you tell these results to uh, most, you know, lay people who have never been exposed to this research. They're very surprised to hear this because, uh, we underappreciate the role of things like fear of embarrassment and diffusion of responsibility and how they are, uh, can have a big psychological impact on our behavior. Well, getting the word out involves gaining greater understanding of what we are like, learning some of this research, appreciating the impact of fear of embarrassment, for example. And then when we are in future situations where we might have otherwise acted badly, we can be on guard and work against those tendencies to not help or to hurt people or to lie, cheat, or steal. So to sum it up in one sentence, the three strategies which I recommend are the importance of moral exemplars, the use of moral reminders, and the value of self-consciousness and self-awareness. Okay, thank you, Chris. And, and uh, I suppose I should ask the uh, the, the converse then as well, uh, what are the things we should avoid uh, before uh, improving our character to work towards that good? Yeah, there are, there are some strategies for improving character, which I don't think are very helpful. And so I set them to the side. And then there's just the, the, the kind of 
question you're really getting at, which is which thing should you be on the guard against or be on the lookout to avoid that that could really set you on the wrong path. And here I, I would say I'll give you one idea that I, that comes to mind, um, which is being careful to select your situations ahead of time. By that, I mean, sometimes when we get into a situation, we can get swept away by what's going on in the situation. And so situations of temptation are like this, whether it's, you know, a, a food temptation or a drinking temptation. Uh, when we get in the situation, we can find that our self-control is eroded and we can get, get, kind of get swept along. And so one thing to guard against and be mindful of is if you see those situations on the horizon, don't trust in your own willpower, uh, but try to avoid the situation coming up in the first place. Uh, try to instead pivot to a different situation uh, and avoid having to confront uh, the demands of the tempting situation. So uh, philosopher um, John Doris gives a, uh, a now widely used example of this where um, someone you're you're married and your significant other is out of town and there's been this person who's been a little bit flirtatious with you in recent weeks at the office and this person uh, suggests, knowing that your significant other is out of town, this person suggests, you know, would you like to go out for drinks or would you like to get an apartment and watch a movie or whatever the case might be? Well, you know, you could trust your own self-control and say, you know, I, you know I'm faithful. I'm not going to worry about, you know, whatever might happen. I'll, I'll, I'll be strong uh, and go anyway. I would uh, caution against that. Um, instead, recommend don't get yourself into those situations in the first place. Because uh, often uh, the demands of the situation will uh, have a greater impact on us than we might have predicted beforehand. Okay, so I've got one more question, I think, for you, Christian, and uh, probably a bit unfair. So uh, in terms of moral exemplars, then, is there anybody you have in mind or, some, or somebody who would embody, either living or dead, or even fictional, as you said yourself, that would embody the, the, the characteristics of a good character? That would... I suppose, draw together all of the different virtues uh, that you're talking about and would balance the psychological and the behavioral. Right. Uh, first, I'll say most of the exemplars that we think of are only exemplars of one virtue or a small handful of virtues. So someone like Abraham Lincoln was an exemplar of honesty, but I wouldn't say he was exemplar of all the virtues. On the cover of the book, I have uh, Gandhi, but as many people point out to me, Gandhi had some real areas of moral weakness as well. So normally when I'm thinking of exemplars, I'm thinking of them as exemplars of one or at most a couple related virtues. The, the one exception I would point to now in, in the second part of my answer, getting directly to your question, well, this um, becomes more personal, which is uh, I would, you know, I, as a person of faith myself, uh, I would, I would say someone like um, Jesus would be the closest uh, more exemplar for me personally, as someone who embodies all the virtues, cognitively, psychologically, and behaviorally. Uh, now, in the, the Christian tradition, you know, it's a little bit uh, it's it's a little bit of an unfair example because he was supposed to be fully divine as well as fully human. So he got he got a lot of help. You could put it, you could put it that way um, from that <laughs> perspective. Um, but uh, otherwise, if if we put that example to one side, 
Uh, I don't think there are any uh, other examples that I can think of at the moment of someone who's perfectly virtuous. <laughs> well, Machiavelli says, of course, wasn't it? The, uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I think it was Machiavelli that said that. Don't hold me to that. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Chris, Dr. Professor Christian Miller, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me on your show. 